Yes, it's a really good question because going back to shareholder return, everything we do, every R&D, every innovation task and project we, 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 we launch and complete, we, we have to understand what the, the ROI is, the return on investment is. And with such long lead times, lunar exploration, that, that does challenge any established business. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hey there, Downlink listeners. This week, we have a different take on space and business, and it's coming from a global Fortune 500 company with a name that unless you're an electrical engineer, you probably have not heard of. It's called TE Connectivity. It has one of the broadest portfolios of electronic components and electrical parts in the world. TE Connectivity products are in your phone, in your car or truck, They're in the oil and gas, the aviation, marine, and rail sectors. Its products are being used for the Internet of Things, artificial intelligence, and electric vertical takeoff and landing vehicles, or e-voltals as they're called. Those are the zero-emission small aircraft that can take off and land like a helicopter but fly like a plane. Something right out of the 1962 Hanna-Barbera TV cartoon, The Jetsons. But real, the company's space heritage dates back to four years before the Jetsons even aired to 1958 and the launch of the first U.S. satellite, Explorer 1. T-Connectivity works with NASA, the European Space Agency, Japan's space agency, JAXA, and ISRO, the Indian Space Research Organization. It's a publicly traded company, which requires producing returns for shareholders. Now and for a future when financial analysts believe there will be a multi-trillion dollar economy off-world. But space is financially risky. In this episode, we're speaking with Martin Cullen. He's TE Connectivity's Senior Manager for Business Development and Strategy. We're going to talk about the future, emerging space platforms, space business, and how publicly traded companies are navigating risk to deliver value to shareholders. Here's our conversation. Hi, Martin. Thank you so much for making the time to come on the podcast. Hi, Laura. Thanks for being here. How are you doing? I'm great, but let's get to the discussion. You know, before we take a look at how you believe well-established and publicly traded aerospace companies can position themselves for the fifth industrial revolution, let's give the audience the opportunity to get to know you first. So take a moment and introduce yourself, who you are, what you do, where you do it, and how you got into the space business. Martin? That'd be a pleasure, Laura. So yeah, my name is Martin Cullen. And as, as you can tell, uh, I'm British. I'm based in the UK. And I work for uh, a very large corporation called TE Connectivity. And I am the, the senior manager uh, for business development and strategy particularly focused on emerging technologies, emerging platforms. So that's all the really fun, cool stuff like electric aircraft, electric flying taxis, 
and of course space. So everything to do with new space, uh, lunar exploration, lunar pioneering, space stations, you know, all that real kind of science fiction stuff is is uh, kind, of, kind of what I'm involved with. So that's absolutely fascinating. And um, fun. And fun. So much fun. I get to talk to so many different people, so many different companies involved at the you know, the leading edge of of technologies and kind of what you read about in science fiction books is is kind of I'm I'm, I'm living out in reality in, in many ways. So that is fascinating. So and yeah, so so my background is is very much engineering uh, as a basis. Um, I did aerospace engineering uh, as a, my first degree. I really wanted to get into Formula One. I was hugely passionate about Formula One, uh, and then I realized that it's it's more of a way you of life. You you could get you could actually also go faster though than <laughs> yeah, Formula exactly. One vehicle uh, goes. I didn't, right? want, I didn't want to be limited by the ground. I, I wanted to go and then soar. So um, so yeah, I. Along with that, I've had a huge fascination with aerospace aircraft. I, now my father used to work at Rolls Royce. He used to bring home components of gas turbine engines when I was a kid. Uh, so I got to see some really nice high tech pieces of equipment and hardware um, to play with. And from that, I, I built my kind of model radio controlled gliders. Um, and eventually I, my aerospace degree, I took into going to Rolls Royce where, wow. yeah, designing you know, parts of the, uh, the gas turbine and, 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 um, lift system for the F-35B, the, the Lightning II aircraft, JSF, also known as. I spent seven years designing components on that. I worked in the U.S. for a few years. And then I, when I moved back to the UK, I took up the project management uh, of the new iteration of that uh, that system. Fifteen years of doing that, I went over to GE. I worked as a project manager in the um, avionics and cockpit display systems for military helicopters. And after five years of that, I joined TE Connectivity as a kind of a advanced program manager quickly moving into the business development side of things. Um, so from there, from that real moment, that's kind of where I really got into the, the space role, um, looking at um, how how the new environment, how the new market of, of space was really becoming more apparent and more and more real. So, yeah, that's pretty much me. I've, I've always worked out the... The leading edge of technology, designing, developing new technology, and um, I'm still doing it today in, in, in a different way. But uh, yeah, hugely exciting times. So let's talk about the company that you get to live and work during these really exciting times. You know, many in the audience will be very familiar with the publicly traded space giants like Boeing or Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, General Dynamics. But few know of T-Connectivity, which is actually a huge company. And if they do know, they may be more recently familiar with its products for electric vertical takeoff and landing vehicles or EV tolls, right? Those experimental vehicles are being developed for Earth, but few know about T-Connectivity's space heritage, which actually dates back to 1958 and the launch of the first U.S. satellite, Explorer 1. So, Martin, 
tell us a bit about TE Connectivity and its space heritage. I mean, it's pretty impressive. Yeah, TE is one of those companies, probably the largest company that most people have never heard of. Yet we we touch your life every day. Um, the moment your alarm goes off, you, know, you pick up your cell phone. There's technology in that cell phone that we produce. You send your first text message, and the the the, the, the data stream that transmits through satellites down to your you know the the, the receivers on Earth that will use uh, TE technology in the satellites. Um, you will see us in your motor vehicle, you know, the the electrical system, the the electronics and the the sensor systems of of your car. Buses, trucks, medical equipment, robotic devices, and in, in automated factories, we we have electrical components on there. So, so what we do really is the the kind of the, the nervous system, the cardiovascular system of civilization, essentially. And without trying to be too grand about it, uh, we manufacture, obviously, design, manufacture, wiring, cable, connectors, fiber optic devices, sensors relays contactors for power switching and like i say it's, it's from super small devices like getting your cell phone and medical equipment through to power distribution and, and electrical grid networks uh, all the way through to kind of what we're here to talk about today and, and that is uh, components on space vehicles uh, whether it's around the earth and leo uh, satellites and, and launches all the way up to uh, what we see in deep space probes, exploration, uh, rovers and landers on Mars, yeah, just to name names. So we were on the original lunar lander. Uh, our, our, our wiring cable is uh, on there. You may know us for names such as Raycam, and, and our Raycam products are on, are on there. And we that have, was the lunar excursion module. The LEM, right? exactly. Okay. You got it. So and it's still up there, you know. And a, there are some components in the Smithos, uh, Smithosian, I think Smithsonian. Say. Smithsonian, yeah. There uh, you go. Uh, um, a museum. Then you've got uh, you've got the Voyager Interstellar mission again. That's have, HM cables. You we, we have, you're there uh, for Mars Curiosity rover. Yeah, Mars Curiosity, Beppe Colombo, James Webb. Um, yeah, so we have a lot of proven technology on on some of these very well-known projects but now don't also now don't forget that you know, we're also on the day-to-day stuff so a lot of the commercial telecom satellites that sit in geo and meo zones uh telecoms we have fiber optics on there we have relays and contactors on those satellites as well um it's not just the 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 halo projects like artemis that you, you, we'll have our components on. We're also in the, like I say, the day-to-day stuff that does kind of enable what we have today as kind of standard way of living, really. Well, seeing that T connectivity is everywhere and all these different things, I mean, it's actually a huge company. I mean, I, reading yeah. off your sheet, what, you make 236 billion products every year? Give or take, yeah. Give or take a few. <laughs> Let's just say yeah. that number again. 236 billion, right? That's a really big number. Uh, what, 92,000 employees, 106 manufacturing sites, 140 countries? 
That's right. You got it. We're as a, as a corporation. So as a corporation, yeah, we we're pretty much split fairly equally across the you know, the Americas, uh, APAC and EMEA. We're seeing APAC like, and EMEA is oh APAC, uh, Asia Pacific, and also then EMEA is Europe, Middle East, and Africa. So we're in all the three main markets globally. Uh, we are a global company. That's, that's one thing that's kind of important to say. We're not just international. Our engineering team, our product management team, our sales team, we really are intertwined with our employees, our staff around the world. So on a daily basis, I speak to sales team and engineers on the West Coast of the USA who are working with a, t- a connectors team based in France. And I'm based here in the UK. Um, so we really have a very networked, you know, connected. Uh, connected. <laughs> connected. Connectivity, yes. <laughs> exactly. Uh, workforce as well. So, yeah, it's you know, those uh, 200 plus billion components. We, you know, our turnover is about $16 billion uh, this year and last year. We are split into 10 different business units covering automotive, commercial vehicles, energy, uh, medical sensors, and then myself, I'm part of the aerospace defense and marine business. So speaking of defense, T-Connectivity's customers, you know, include the traditional aerospace companies because I'm, you know, focusing in on space here, plus new space companies, which is a growing customer base. And that also means, right, it's, it's got to include defense space as well. No? I mean, it, where do your products end up in the defense space sort of mm. area? Yeah, so no, our history, you know, we actually started our business because of the Second World War. You know, if, if, you trace, if you trace our, our, our roots going all the way back to, you know, I think it's 1941, I think you can, and the AMP business, uh, and you know, we've become as large as we have been, uh, have, you know, are now, is you know, through mergers and acquisitions to where TE Connectivity is today. So we, ha- we have a history working in, in the defense market, um, and that continues today. Um, we support a lot of the traditional defense companies, such as you know, Northrop Grumman, Lockheed Martin, uh, Airbus Defense and Space, part of you know, the Airbus, Airbus Group. Um, so we have our engineers in those regions and our sales teams and commercial teams in those regions working closely with uh, defense companies uh, for for new products uh, and new platforms. So most of the platforms you see in operation today will have TE products on them, such as the, the, the JSF F-35 aircraft. Um, and as part of our our business mix, we, we do address that market as well. And within the space realm, it was super interesting to be at a, a conference last year in, in Vegas, I think it was the AIAA Ascend conference, where uh, I was listening to some of the uh, speakers, some of the former um, uh, leaders of the US uh, Space Force, Talking about what is happening or what is could be happening in in the in the Cislunar, um area, and one of the things that kind of struck a chord with me, and and you know, on some of my own kind of deliberations about what is happening in space, is you know, 
what we see, what we're on the verge of now is kind of what was happening in the, the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries with, with trade routes opening up between you know, Asia and the Caribbean, the various naval forces of the British, the Spanish, and the pirates out there. So, you know, it's, it, you can kind of see how wherever, everywhere man has been uh, and opened up new trade routes, there have, there have been conflicts. So, you know, we, we have to address that as, as a society, independent, you know, independent of, who, of who the actor, actors may be. Um, there will be a need for securitizing trade routes, and obviously, lunar, uh, lunar, the lunar economy, the cislunar uh, domain, the transportation of uh, vital resources between lunar orbit and um, and Earth orbit is potential for for conflict. So, so the U.S. Space Force, we know, is is investing heavily in secure securing uh, Earth orbit. I think I read 500 satellites or thereabouts is going to be part of the proliferated warfare system architecture. Warfighter architecture, yeah. but yeah, that was close yeah, enough. Close enough. <laughs> yeah. But let me help you out here with with my next question, right? Because you know, I know you are Connectivity's business development manager, right? I also know that the company and therefore its shareholders also depend on you very particularly to think about the future. And I know your shareholders have been pretty happy because the share price has risen roughly 17% over the past 12 months, right? So congratulations. That's pretty impressive. And to keep that going, though, you know, you have to think about how to position your company to be ready to work with emerging platforms. You know, EVTOLs or EVTOLs are one such platform. But this is a space podcast, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. what about the off world, like commercial space stations, human habitats near mm-hmm. the moon and Lagrange Point 2 and lunar rovers, right? I mean, you mm-hmm. have the heritage there, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and And mining on asteroids. Right. What is T Connectivity doing to position itself for the off world? Mm. I mean, beyond, you know, just sending satellites to low Earth orbit. Yeah. So so part of my my role and part of my kind of deep thinking is is trying to put a framework around what is what is space. And at the very top level. One thing is very clear is that, is that we're moving from a, a space to earth economy where uh, you have a, a, a space you know, satellites offering a, a means to an end for, for data, for um, information to be consumed on earth to one that is a space to space economy where you have value being added and consumed in space. So that's one of the, 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 you know, the, the macro level uh, one of the macro level changes that we are seeing here. Now, obviously, as a publicly traded company, quarterly returns, annual reports, that cycle of delivering value to our shareholders on a, on a, a regular basis is obviously vital to, to everyone involved. Balance that with traditional space and even traditional aerospace where programs are five to 25 years in gestation. How how do you get that right mix? Um, now, new space does offer us 
a way into commercializing you know our side of the the, the space business far easier development cycles are two to five years not 10 to 15 or longer we can look at how we can develop uh, products and technologies at a faster pace that will have other benefits perhaps in different parts of our business so yeah it's that eternal question of of how do you how do you balance the right level of investment um we have something like eight thousand engineers we have invested over $700 million the past few years, each year, uh, into R&D and innovation. And Hang on, no, just say that number again. $713 million last year, uh, I think, or 2022, $703 million last year. So consistently, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars invested into R&D and innovation. Um we were void, voted very recently as by Fast Company, I think, as the one of the top workplaces for innovation, uh, and that's not the first time we've we've won it. So, Innov- uh, TE Corporation uh, as a corporation is one of the the best places for uh, innovating new technologies, new products associated with with connectivity, with with like I say, our products of sensors and power and signal. And turning but the that money, to, but what's really interesting is that seven hundred plus million dollars a year is being put into innovation, into development. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you don't often actually hear that kind of number put into uh, research and development because you can't develop without the research, right? And where is that going when? You're looking in the space domain because that, that's not a number just for space. That would be for all of oh, TE connectivity, yeah. right? I mean, yeah, right. That's, that's I mean, I'd love it if it was all space, <laughs> right? I mean, that would be great. But, you, you know, what, what are the things that this money is being put into for, for space? And, and mm-hmm. you know, maybe to, to even focus it even further, I mean, we have this, you know, we're in an amazing time at this moment because at the time of this recording, intuitive machines. You know, it's I am one mission has launched and it's on its way to the moon right now. And it, it may even land later this week. And it's not the only new space company as a not traditional, you know, it's a young new company shooting for the moon. But we've got others in the National Commercial Payload Services Program like Astrobotic and iSpace out of Japan is just going for it with some help from that nation's government. And also, interestingly enough, shareholder backing. You know, when you think about this money being put into research and development, is it looking towards, are you looking to spend that development money for the moon or the cislunar region for operations there? Yes, it's a really good question because going back to shareholder return, everything we do, every R&D, every innovation task and project we, 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 we launch and complete, we we have to understand what the the ROI is, the return on investment is, and with such long lead times, lunar exploration that that does challenge any established business. Uh, when you look at who is going to the moon, it is it, it is the startup, um, the companies that have uh, very agile ways of working, very um, clear set of objectives and goals, very focused. Like any corporate, any large corporation, uh, when you work, look to see how you can 
splicing your ways of working with companies like that. You are challenged in, in every which way, not just products and technology, but also with the, the pace of development. And not every company can do that. So, so the way that some larger traditional companies can accelerate the development, they either acquire or they have spin-off uh, companies. Now, Lockheed Martin and, and Crescent, uh, their spin-off for the, the Lunar Constellation uh, satellite network. There are real kind of established ways to get innovation moving faster, to get companies to respond to market demands faster. And the simplest way that TE Connectivity and, and, and uh, the aerospace and defense and marine business has gone about this is we've created a, uh, an advanced engineering group of, of specialists in terms of components and technologies, architecture, engineers that have a very broad understanding in terms of what our product range is, but then a deep understanding of the, the technology and the capability behind each of those components. And also and the operating environment, I'd also assume. Exactly. Because, I mean, those words you could say for anything on earth, quite frankly. I mean, I hate to say it, but, I mean, I'm, I'm talking regolith. Oh, yeah. Let's, yeah, let's talk about regolith. So, <laughs> so, 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 yeah. So, with, our, with those engineers, I mean, we're working with you know, some of the NASA research agencies right now about, about how we can help uh, creates technologies and, and components for for use on on the lunar on the lunar surface as part of the pioneering efforts. Uh, super interesting, super challenging. Regolith super is, in need of an example. So regolith is super nasty. <laughs> uh-huh. It's 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 fine. It's full of nanoparticles. It's sharp. It's magnetic. It's electrostatic. It's uh, it's know, not it's, something you put in your smoothie. It's probably the worst thing you probably want to uh, get in touch with, you know, whether you're a human being or whether you're an electrical engineering company. Um, but we have some technology, and we are working closely with uh, some of the lunar rover applications for robotics. And some of the robotics are looking to be developed for exploring the lava tubes um, and systems on the lunar surface. How so where connect- would TE connectivity, you know, be in that scenario, right? Mm. You've got a lunar rover, you've got a lunar lava tube that uh, we, the greater we humanity wants to explore. Mm-hmm. What is the T connectivity actual product? I really want to give our listeners a, a, a mental visual, mm-hmm. right? Like take us there. I mean, we're, well, at the, imagine- we're at the mouth of the lava tube. What is the T connectivity thing that's just got to work? Well, similar to how you have uh, marine uh, um, robotic underwater uh, robots, uh, devices that search around. NASA is looking to use a lunar version of that. So it's a simple robot, two wheels, and we provide the power and data connection to that robot from a base station, uh, whether it's a, a, a power system or a control system. We have the, the connectivity of, of cable and connector that will connect that cable to the rover. Uh, so that's technology that we are adapting from use in aerospace and, and other arenas. 
um, specifically to to make opera, uh, the rover operational on the lunar surface within that harsh environment. The yeah, and, and it's very important to have no regolith, obviously, on any of the the connecting or conducting mating surfaces uh, between the the wire between the uh, and between the rover. Got it. So basically you're talking about just so I can wrap the bow on it, you, you know, from the control point that would be, let's say, on the surface of the moon to the robot that's going down the lava tube, you're talking about the cable, the connection to that cable and for it to, you know, be able to to do its job despite the fact that it's, you know, being used on finely ground sharp glass. You got it. So, yeah, as this cable is is pulled across the lunar surface, as the dust envelops and and gets into all the the nooks and crannies on on the rope on the on the rover and around the connector, um, how do you ensure that super fine nanoparticle does does not ingress into the conducting surfaces? How do you ensure you have a, a good connection? So, you have no power spikes. You have no um, high temperature rises. You have no, okay, maybe not fires in, in that particular vacuum environment, but you have charring of the of the contacts that that essentially block or uh, certainly increase the resistivity of the of the electrical uh, conducting um, path. And I'd also imagine it'd be pretty important to be able to also release that cable in case of an emergency. It, again, it depends, I think, on, on the, 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 the criticality of the mission. So obviously with uh, you know, uh, inhabited or, or crewed rovers, you need to think about the safety aspect. Um, but you know, we kind of already do some of those quick-release systems with specialist connectors for launchers and, and, the, and the umbilicals on, on launch systems. So you know, this is kind of where we can adapt within the aerospace and defense and marine business of of technologies that we use in our business unit through to perhaps what we see in our energy business. We have huge cables and huge connectors that's kind of the size of your torso for energy distribution. Um, So I'm I'm super excited about how we can work within TE, how we can use our capabilities from uh, the energy division perhaps and and essentially power up the moon uh, where you have a... Uh, a, a nuclear power source, how you connect from the equator through to the, 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 the southern polar regions where the first habitational modules will be, um, you know, there's a very good potential that that T connectivity will be some of the first um, companies that have an established infrastructure uh, on, on, the, on the lunar surface. So that brings me to point where I want to, you know, focus out a little bit, right? We've got all this activity that's going to or on the moon, right? We've got a lot of commercial activity that's never really happened before. It hasn't really. Um, we know that a number of governments are are going to the moon. They want to establish uh, stations either on the lunar surface or um, in the cislunar region that are, you know, habitated not even sure if that's really a word, but I'm going to stick with it anyway. And, and you guys are, are, are there, right? But that's a bit different than, let's say, perhaps other large 
companies that have, you know, space heritage, but they don't seem to be playing in that space, at least not so publicly. Mm. And, and I want to understand, you know, what's holding back the traditional companies? I mean, is it that these missions to the moon currently are just too small as compared to NASA's space launch system or SLS or, or, or is it that they just can't make the math work? I mean, what, what's going on here? Because they were all there at the beginning, mm-hmm. right? For the first space race, which is pretty important. It's, it was civil, it was diplomatic, it was military, it was all that wrapped up, right? And, and here we are again in another somewhat of a space race situation. No, we, not, we sort of are, we are. Why do we not see the larger companies like the Boeings and the Lockheed Martins and the Northrop Grimmins and, and all of them, you know, jumping in? They mm. have the experience. Yeah, that's a super good question. And I think it does come down to, well, in, in my eyes, kind of the that the financial environment that we are in today uh, i think uh, as a society we are more financialized um and the demands on returns is perhaps greater than they were were back in the 60s and 70s i think the ideology of of being the the first man on the moon i think some of the the, the greater aspirations have perhaps play second fiddle to perhaps what the markets, the stock markets, the investors are demanding. So so in, in my eyes, I mean, I, I kind of see how they are waiting to see what happens a little. They are waiting perhaps to see the smaller companies who are less risk adverse uh, make headway. And I kind of alluded it to earlier where you know, some of the larger companies have, have done spin-offs while many of the larger companies have have bought and acquired stakes or or, or complete control in some of these startups, uh, I think of some of the early ones a long time ago, like Surrey Satellites, and that was a, that was a university spin-off, and an Airbus um, acquired them. We have um, Millennium as well. That's that's now a Boeing company. Um, we have strong partnerships between the likes of Terran Orbital and Lockheed Martin. So. It's kind of been done in a different way. And I alluded to earlier about how larger companies are very much focused on efficiency uh, and return for shareholders, which, but the smaller companies are really looking to be effective, you know, rapid growth, agile, taking the risks, using you know, COTS components, using components that are from the automotive industry, because they and can cut components lots. are components that are off the shelf just just to bring everybody yeah. along yep. commercially off the shelf so not fully space grade to nasa specifications to esa specifications or jasa um, they are more affordable because they are less robust to the harsh environments of space they don't get tested to the highest radiation um, st- uh, specifications and environments, they perhaps suffer greater outgassing. The expected life, therefore, is a lot less, um, which is kind of what's led to the huge growth in lunar, sorry, in LEO satellites. Um, lower launch costs. Again, we can go into that. How how the accessibility to space has allowed more effective, more commercially viable 
launches uh, and smaller companies like Spire and Swarm really kind of take off and offer a new economy. It's quite self-perpetuating. Um, we'll see, I think, an exponential increase in the lunar economy. And we're, we're probably at the very first part of that inflection point, I think, where we'll see a rapid growth in smaller companies making rapid uh, achievements in, in space terms. Um, in you know, a few years, two, three, four, five years, we'll see those succeed and perhaps merge, perhaps be acquired by the larger companies to bring in that capability. So, yeah, it's you know, every company starts from somewhere. Now, you need to look at where where Boeing were 120 years ago and, and who started that and where they are today. So one of these companies, I'm sure, will become the new Boeing of the lunar surface, uh, of the lunar environment, and perhaps even um, the, the LEO environment, where we have potential for in-orbit in manufacturing, uh, in-orbit destinations, and all the services that go around that. It's, it's, yeah, it's, I kind of feel we're in the 1910s of the Industrial Revolution in terms of when you look at the, the automotive and uh, environment and the industrialization that, that comes about. So, yeah, this fifth, this fifth Industrial Revolution is, I think, uh, kind of very much the, the start of it is happening right here. Do you think T-connectivity is going to manufacture in space? I mean, in space, assembly and manufacturing is, is definitely a, a hot topic right now. Yes, in in orbit, uh, uh, manufacturing, uh, ISRU in the lunar surface as well. I was listening to one of the other podcasts just recently uh, about cislunar industries and um, fascinated to hear about how the the manufacture of of wire uh, in space. Now, obviously, lengths may be still quite nascent, but you can see a time where perhaps where you have an in-orbit factory, and you are manufacturing satellites in space for uh, deployment directly into space, while all those cool components such as you know, insulated wire, insulated cable, you know, could be manufactured in space by by someone like TE. Um, we can take a conductor, we could perhaps wrap our, uh, our insulation material around it and form a a, a, uh, a coil of, of wire for uh, insertion into a satellite. So, yeah, I think we're probably decades away from that. But certainly when you start looking at the economics of, 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 um, of manufacturing, why, why take up everything from, from the Earth's surface when perhaps it's economically better for, for manufacturing orbit? Martin, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure, Laura. Thanks. I, I, I like it. Like these kind of um, uh, mind, deep mind thinking and exploratory of what could be is, is, is absolutely fascinating times. That's it for this week. For your daily dose of award-winning defense coverage, listen to the Defense and Aerospace Report with Vaga Maradian. And for the maritime domain, listen to Cavish Ships with Chris Cavis and Chris Cervello. And get your air domain news and analysis from the Air Power Podcast with J.J. Gertler and Vago Maradian. I'm Laura Winter. Thank you for listening. Listening.